So again, this is our last Sunday, listening to the stories that Jesus tells on his way to Jerusalem, on the way to his crucifixion. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, which is when Jesus enters Jerusalem, greeted by the cheering crowds. And as you well know, these same crowds in only a matter of days will swing their affections away from Jesus and toward the religious authorities. And as crazy as this whole scenario sounds to us, that people would so quickly swing their loyalties in such an extreme way, this is the type of thing that we see over and over in humanity, in people just like us. This is a sickness deep inside of us. We usually find it safer to go with the devil we know rather than the God who can be so mysterious to us. C.S. Lewis records a conversation in his Chronicles of Narnia stories. It's become well-known, sometimes overused, but its simplicity is very helpful, and it is very true. Lucy, a little girl in the story, she asks a character named Mr. Beaver whether Aslan, the lion Christ figure of the story, is a safe lion. Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You know, isn't it the case that we wish God were both safe and good? It would make our lives a lot easier if he were both. But goodness and safeness are not always the same thing. And this is the hard part. To be truly good in a world of brokenness and evil requires you to venture into unsafe territory. Unsafe territory in your relationships, in your vocation, in your morality, in all sorts of things. So this is what Jesus exemplifies for us, especially in the final days of his life. And in his going to the cross, Jesus calls us to follow him with our own lives out of the realm of safety, but always <coughs> shielded by his goodness. Now, the stories that Jesus tells, how does this, what I'm saying, connect to these parables like the one we're in this morning? The stories Jesus tells on this journey to Jerusalem are windows into the new world he is creating in the midst of our world. Now, a world where prodigal children return home and are welcomed by their father, where there is celebration and an unpolluted joy. But it's also a world where the most dutiful children can miss out because of jealousy and fear. This is a good world that Jesus is making, that he's bringing into our world. But it's not always a safe world. It's not always predictable. We have to be careful about assuming too much of ourselves or too much about Jesus. So the parable that we just listened to in Luke 18 illustrates for us this same reality. Of all things in the world that you would think would be safe, you would think that devotion or piety, 
Things like our church attendance, prayer, fasting, or good deeds like giving money to the poor. Of all things in the world, you would think these would be safe. Things that we can trust as untainted by our sin. Surely my motives are good when I pray and when I come to church and when I give money. But here Jesus tells us that even our piety is not safe. Even our good works and our displays of devotion, our most holy of acts, can become twisted and self-serving. So the story begins with Jesus telling us about two men who went up to the story to pray. To the, to the temple to pray, excuse me. They're two very different men. A Pharisee and a tax collector. You, you could not find two more different men. Pharisees were admired for their devotion. Tax collectors disdained for their greed. They charged you more taxes than they had to and skimmed off the top for themselves. If you think the IRS is bad to most people, tax collectors were worse. It is hard for us to imagine two such opposite people Try picturing a white man and an African-American man entering the same church in the Deep South in the 1950s. These are complete contrasts. <clears throat> the story, I think, is opening with a picture of the breadth of God's kingdom. This is part of God, the, the beauty of God's kingdom, that such different people can worship God under the same roof. So, of course, tax collectors could have a bad reputation, but that doesn't mean every tax collector is like this. And what this story is illustrating for us is that people of all different stripes can come into God's place. But once these two men are in the temple, their paths diverge. The Pharisee, we're told, he stands by himself. We get the sense it's because of his own sense of his dignity, his own self-respect. He stands alone because this is the way he feels about himself. He's simply different than everyone else. He has something other people don't have. The tax collector, on the other hand, because of his shame, remains at the back of the room. He's afraid to draw any closer. Both men pray, but sadly their prayers are vastly different. They're just as different as their appearance. And this part is terribly sad. This is the travesty, I think. Part of the beauty of God's kingdom is that people can look very different in appearance. Everything about them can be different. But because of God's love and mercy, their hearts can be very similar. So in a church we were at in Baton Rouge, when we first started attending there, there was this man who had very, very long hair, a, a beard. He, he looked like a biker. He would wear cut-off stuff and, you know, just very, very casual. And he was a little bit scary. But then I noticed that this man hugged every single person in the church. He was one of the only ones who did. There was another man in the church who would kiss everybody, and people would joke, don't get these guys in the same room because it's going to be awkward. They're going <laughs> to hug and kiss everyone. This man, I would come to find out, was a, a drug dealer who was uh, being searched by the law, but then was converted to Christ and stopped selling drugs, and then he just fell off the map, and the police couldn't find him. And later they would get, you know, meet him and say, we were looking for you. 
But then you just fell off the map. He looked so different than everybody else, but his heart was so rich, just like everyone else who had been converted to Jesus. This is part of the beauty of God's kingdom, is that two men can look very different, but their hearts can be shaped in the same love. That's not at all the case with these two men. That's the travesty. They both pray, but then they return home, and then Jesus pulls back from the story to give us this comment. The tax collector went home justified, which means he went home in right relationship to God, but not the Pharisee. It's as if Jesus could, after our worship here this morning, interject and say to one of us, your worship has brought you closer to me. You're nearer to me because of your heart and worship. But to another of us, he might say, you're further from me because of your heart. Can you imagine Jesus doing that when we leave here? This is what he does with these men. Now, make no mistake. Jesus is telling us that even our devotion, our worship can become so distorted that it can increase the distance between us and God rather than drawing us closer. What's different about these two men? Better yet, what's different about their prayers that one walks away right with God and the other walks away further from him? And we have to be careful not to settle for simple answers here. What I mean is, we can't read this parable and think, well, obviously it's better to act like a sinner and be honest about it rather than try to be really holy. The point of this story cannot be to lower God's standards for us. So what is the point? Well, both of these men are doing a type of self-analysis. They're examining themselves and their lives. The Pharisee sees himself one way, and he prays to God in light of that. The tax collector sees himself another way, and he prays very differently. Now, this is an unavoidable part of our lives. We relate to each other and we relate to God based on how we see ourselves. This is just the way it is. But if you want to know yourself, you have to have a standard. You have to have something to measure yourself by in order to know yourself. And the difference between these men really comes down to this. One man measures himself by looking down at others. Another man measures himself by looking up. To God. So let's look first at the prayer of the Pharisee. And before we jump into it, I need to I want to give a sidebar here. There is nothing wrong with acknowledging your innocence before God. There is nothing wrong with this. There are various psalms that are actually called Psalms of Innocence, where a person pleads their innocence before God, where they ask God to vindicate them, even to vindicate them against others. 
And these uh, people who are writing the Psalms, they're not claiming perfection, but they're pleading with God to do right by them for where they have been obedient in certain areas of their lives. There's nothing wrong with this. Some of you are going to come up against situations with other people where you're being accused of things that are not true. And it is okay. In fact, it is right for you in those cases to go to God and to say, God, I'm innocent of what they're accusing me of. God expects you to do this, to plead your innocence. So what's different about the Pharisee's prayer? To be fair to the Pharisee, we have to acknowledge that he does thank God for God's work in his life. Did you notice this? Listen again to what the Pharisee prays. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he goes on to list a, a, a lot of sins that are not good. Now, however much we might cringe at the way the Pharisee says this, whatever else we might say, the Pharisee is not claiming credit for his morality. And we need to see this. There's a straw man argument a lot of Christians use against the Pharisees that their problem is they believed in works righteousness. They believed that they had earned their way to God. But this isn't always the case. This man believes God has helped him get to where he is. He believes that God has made him into a guy who is squeaky clean from the outside, completely innocent of wrongdoing. So, again, what is the problem with this guy? Again, his problem is that when he wants to get a sense of where he stands in life, how he measures up, instead of looking up to God, he looks down at others. And there are two major problems that grow out of this. First problem is that comparing ourselves to others usually leads to pride in ourselves and contempt for others. Pride in ourselves and contempt for others. This is the way it is whether we're talking about grades in school, our ability in sports, our success at work, or our faith. Almost out of survival, we have to find something that's wrong with others and something that's good in us. We need our own superiority to be confirmed, and so we achieve this by being horrified at others and putting ourselves above them. So gossip is one place where pride and contempt expose themselves. Have you ever noticed that gossip, when we talk about others, when they're not around, it's nearly always based on a kind of self-defense mechanism. When we gossip, others are made to look bad and we're made to look good. It can be so subtle. It can even be unintentional, subconscious. But usually, others are made to look bad. We're made to look good. And the reason for this is because comparison has become the natural way we measure ourselves in the world. The natural way that we seek our worth in the world. 
This is the way it is for pastors, for students, for mothers, for everyone. We have to find some sense of our dignity. And so we compare ourselves to see how we're doing. But it can be so destructive. This is the first problem that develops as the Pharisee looks down on others. He's filled with pride and contempt and he's left unable to love. But there's a second problem that develops. And this one is even bigger. The innocence that he sees in his life. So all the good things he does and the bad things that he avoids. This innocence is only visible to him through comparison. Right? This is how he knows how good he is. As he sees someone else who isn't as good as him. But the problem is this is not an innocence before God. In fact, the Pharisee's real status before God is left completely unexamined because he's so overly consumed with his status before others. This is why this, the Pharisee leaves and he is not in right relationship to God because he hasn't asked God how he feels about him. So the Pharisee, while he thinks he knows himself, he really doesn't know himself at all. In fact, he's blind to himself. This is what comparison with others does to us. It blinds us to our real selves. Now, if you've stopped listening, that's okay, but I want you to start listening now, okay? <laughs> this sort of pride and blindness is one of the most dreadful and infectious diseases of Christianity. It is one of the most dreadful and infectious diseases within us. Now, it's not because we believe we've earned our righteousness. That's not why. No, the truth is, a lot of us are less like the Pharisee and more like the tax collector. The only difference is the sound of our prayer. So our prayer might sound more like this. I thank you, God, that I'm not so proud as this Pharisee or so bad as others. Yes, I'm an extortioner. I'm unjust sometimes. I'm full of anger. Sometimes I'm even an adulterer in my heart. Prone to wander? Yeah, that's me. But that's the way human beings are. And that's what I am. But at least I admit. So I'm a little bit better than the rest of the breed. Do you see how even our humility and honesty can become twisted and turn into pride? I might be bad. I do have my flaws, but I could be worse. You see, even our humility is not immune to the devil. In the words of one pastor, these are the very nests in which the devil loves to lay the cuckoo eggs of pride. He is pleased as punch when the pious hatch them out. This is the way the devil can trick us. Our pride and our blindness result because we constantly compare ourselves to each other and to the world instead of looking up. This is the only place where the prayer of the tax collector is truly different. 
So when you really begin to turn to God to measure yourself, when you really start to look up instead of looking down to understand who you are, other people should slowly fade from your mind. You must become utterly alone with God. Can you imagine the tax collector in this situation saying this? Yeah, the Pharisee, he's got a lot going for him, but I mean, he's a sinner too. On the one hand, he would have been right if he had said that. But when you're alone with God, dealing only with God, there are lots of things that are true that no longer make any difference whatsoever. The reality is there are people who are better than me and are better than you at lots of different things, and it doesn't matter. When you are alone with God, there are lots of things that no longer matter, and this is the place that we have to get to with God. This is why the tax collector's prayer is so radically different, because he is determined to measure himself upward. God himself is his only standard for comparison. And once he measures himself this way, he is intensely aware of how much he falls short of who God has made him to be. This story insists that all of us must in some way claim for ourselves the title that Paul claimed for himself. I am the chief of sinners. All of us are in some way the chief of sinners. But the only way we can discover this is by each of us looking up to God ourselves and refusing to look down on each other. This is not a title that we can give each other. In other words, I can't tell you you're the chief of sinners, and you can't tell me this. But in my own relationship to God, I can discover this for myself. And you can discover this for yourself, too. It's a title that we must learn to claim for ourselves. However... The tax collector's fallenness is not the end of the story. The moral of this story is not that our primary self-identification should be sinner. This is not worm theology that we're encountering here, that we need to think more poorly of ourselves. That's not the full picture, and it's a distorted image. Remember what Jesus says at the end. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the great surprise, the hinge of the Christian faith. It is when we come face to face with our fallenness, our dreadfulness, that we also experience the love and dignified mercy of God. You see, only when you're willing to stop fighting for your own superiority, to stop looking down on others and instead look up to God, will you finally begin to discover the secret of who you are. And at that point, you'll also discover the secret of who others are. 
that you are indeed broken. You are terribly fragile. You are. But in the loving sacrifice of Jesus, you are beloved. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is what we can say to each other. You are the child of a loving father who has been welcomed into a family of grace. So as we're nearing the end of this Lenten season together, as we're drawing near to the cross with Jesus, Jesus is calling us to follow him very closely and to discover our truest selves. But there is no safe way to do this. Beware, there is no safe way to do this. It requires abandoning the most reliable way to feel good about ourselves, which is to look down on someone else. Instead, Jesus invites us to trust his goodness, to look up and trust that we will, when we look up, receive the love, forgiveness, and affirmation that we desperately need. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.